Friday News Dump is political parlance for a moment in which bad news is most ideally released to the press, so that this bad news causes as little damage as possible to the divulger of that news. What this means in practice is that if you are part of a presidential administration that has bad news you have to release, something that the world is going to find out about eventually or that you're legally obligated to tell the public about, so you have to say something to get it out of the way. The theory here is if you release that news on Friday around 5 p.m., chances are it'll burn hot for a moment and then burn out over the weekend before most people hear about it, but if they do, they will have forgotten all about it by the following Monday morning. The TV show The West Wing actually did an episode that addressed this topic called Take Out the Trash Day, and through the character's dialogue, we find out that they don't just unload this information at an inconvenient time for the press to sufficiently cover it, since a lot of the journalists will be off work for the weekend, and the majority of the public doesn't even read the news on Saturdays, or at least not to the same degree that they engage with it on weekdays. They don't just do that, they also release information in clusters, so that if you have a finite amount of space... Back in the day, it was inches in a newspaper, but these days it's more likely to be the limited attention span of online consumers. If you have a finite amount that you can present and expect to have read each day, hitting journalists with a deluge of information all at once makes them cover each of those things more superficially than they might have if they only had one big, important, potentially embarrassing story to report upon. So the moniker News Dump is accurate, as you seldom see just one story reported in this way. It's generally at least one embarrassing story plus a cluster of other news items, which then forces the press to divide their efforts and the consumers, us, the public, to divide our attention between multiple things at the same time. Arguably, President Trump has been one of the more skilled practitioners of this art, seemingly always having some new but minor inflammatory scandal dominating the headlines, just as some arguably more important but less outrage-inducing piece of news hits the wire. Some new boring but vital tax law passes, and within hours he has said something potentially racist or ignorant or otherwise emotion-inflaming, which could be a purposeful misdirection on his part, or it could be that someone in his PR department deserves a raise for their excellent timing. Either way, it's a very effective means of misdirecting the public's attention when you have something that you have to get out there but don't want to have anyone focus on or look at particularly closely. Of course, it's not just Trump who does this. It's something that all politicians from all political parties have been wont to do. And beyond the world of politics, we see it from corporations and other organizations as well. Any entity, including individuals, that could experience harm, reputational or otherwise, as a consequence of bad news about them getting out to the press, could potentially benefit from this tactic, and often do. Once you start looking for it, you'll begin to see it everywhere. 
Now, in some cases, no doubt, information just leaks in chunks rather than as a steady, manageable stream. So the appearance of media manipulation is just that, an appearance. But in many other cases, because this is such a well-known tactic that very often works, at least to some degree, what you see is what it is. And even the best of intentions from we, the constituents and customer base of these entities, and from our journalistic infrastructure, does not always allow us to keep a story warm over the weekend, serving it up as if it's brand new that next Monday morning. The most remarkable and catastrophic story on Friday around 5 p.m. could land with a thud and a shrug the following week. At least in part because variables will have changed in the interceding days, and in part because other newsworthy and more recent things will need reporting upon, and in part because those to whom the bad news applies will have had the chance, all weekend, to further reinforce their public relations walls and bulwark against potential backlash. What I want to talk about today is a next-level version of a Friday night news dump, along with a story of gross corporate mismanagement and potential corporate misdeeds, and even some presidential intentions that once looked pretty exciting, but which do not look as rosy today as they looked a couple of years ago. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. On November 14th, 2018, a 6,000-word story landed in the New York Times that demolished the public relations wall that Mark Zuckerberg and other C-suiters at Facebook, particularly Chief Operations Officer Sheryl Sandberg, had been building for the past several years. That article, which is the one that I would like to unspool today, is entitled Delay, Deny, and Deflect, How Facebook's Leaders Fought Through Crisis. So unless you've been very intentionally avoiding the news these past few years, which I truly would not recommend, though I can understand the impulse to do so, and maybe even if you have been trying to avoid the news, you've quite possibly still heard something about Facebook's issues in the world of politics and business regulation and general reputation management. The current season of Facebook's problems began in early 2018, when a whistleblower who had previously worked for a company called Cambridge Analytica came forward, revealing his identity and confirming and resurfacing a series of allegations that were originally published in The Observer in the UK, and which were then amplified by The Guardian and Channel 4 News, both also based in the UK, and The New York Times. The initial round of allegations were focused on the so-called Brexit vote, which eked by, leading to the passage of Article 50, which began a two-year process for the UK to leave the European Union, something that, as of the day I'm recording this, is still going forward, though even people who initially supported the concept now seem a lot less certain about it for a variety of reasons, including some of the politicians who flogged the idea publicly and who were in office when it happened. And part of that doubt is the consequence of the public learning about this company, Cambridge Analytica. Now, Cambridge Analytica positioned themselves as a think tank and consultancy that could make use of data that they mined in a variety of ways to manipulate the public and, in turn, manipulate votes and elections. 
the company, which is now officially defunct, but which still kind of exists in other forms, under other names, was in part owned by Robert Mercer, an early developer and investor in artificial intelligence, and a hedge fund owner whose politics slant heavily toward the right. You might recognize his name as one of the major funders of Breitbart News. Though in 2017, after a series of scandals, he sold his stake in Breitbart to his daughters. But he also played a huge role funding and providing analytics to Nigel Farage, a politician at the forefront of the Brexit movement. And he did the same for Donald Trump's 2016 presidential election bid. Before working with Trump, Cambridge Analytica also worked for Ted Cruz back in 2015, and they worked for the Institutional Revolutionary Party, the IRP, in the 2018 Mexican presidential election. A party which, it should be noted, suffered a fairly catastrophic defeat. Whereas Trump and Brexit both won their respective battles, the former losing the popular vote by about 3 million, but winning the electoral vote handedly, the latter winning in a popular referendum in 2016 by almost 4 percentage points and a little over 4 million votes. Mercer and Cambridge Analytica's efforts began to run afoul of the press and the law when, in March of 2018, Channel 4 News broadcast videos of the CEO of the company, Alexander Nix, bragging that Cambridge Analytica had used sex workers, bribery, sting operations, and honey traps to discredit political opponents. And in that same video, he also bragged that the company ran Donald Trump's digital presidential campaign. This led to an investigation by the United Kingdom government and led to an internal investigation by Facebook, which had their own piece of the puzzle to figure out. It had been rumored but unproven until that point that Cambridge Analytica had used and abused Facebook's tools in ways that were against the service's policies several years previous. Back in 2015, Facebook removed an app from their platform called This Is Your Digital Life. This was just one of the many harmless-seeming horoscope-like games that people could play on Facebook back in the day, some of which would tell them which Harry Potter house they were in, or which Myers-Briggs category they were, or which character from some popular TV show they were. What many of us didn't realize was that when we used these apps and played these games, and this is still the case to a more limited degree, by the way, we were also giving these apps access to our information. And in this case, the This Is Your Digital Life app gained access not just to our information, we being the people who used the app, but all of our friends' information as well. The data this app collected was used by Cambridge Analytica to produce and distribute fake news stories and polarizing editorials in an attempt to sway votes and elections. Now, if you're thinking that's bullshit and should not even be possible, yes, I concur. And so did the U.S. Congress, which called Mark Zuckerberg to testify before them in April of 2018. It was during this testimony that another bombshell was dropped. The original estimate Facebook had given for the possible number of accounts that were accessed and frisked for data by this app that was created by Cambridge Analytica was far higher than what they had previously estimated. They originally guessed, worst-case scenario, something like 50 million accounts were data mined. 
it turned out that it was probably something closer to 87 million. So that scandal was bad for Zuckerberg and Facebook because it indicated that perhaps they were not the best guardians of our information. We, the browsing, clicking, app-installing public. I mean, Facebook's trade is in data. That's their entire product. Even if it seems like they do other things, it all kind of ties back to data mining and spinning that data into stuff that they can sell. And if they can't be trusted to protect that data from entities that would use it to try to manipulate elections by harvesting it for weaponizable information, those that would use it to feed fake stories and polarizing editorials to the public in an effort to intentionally increase divisions and sow political discord and in some cases to lower voter turnout, which is what they supposedly did, if you can believe their self-promotion, which I should note is still up in the air. We don't really know what impact they had, if any, on any of these elections. We just know that they tried to sway these elections and votes using illegal and ethically dubious tactics, and then bragged about the effectiveness of their tactics when they were trying to provide those services to other politicians and causes. But either way, if Facebook cannot be trusted with this info, What are we to make of that? What are we to do? Now, this was also an interesting moment when the company was called to task for all of this, mid-2018, and when we had this new evidence to support previous assertions about all of these same things because Zuckerberg publicly apologized and seemed to accept that he and his company had done something wrong. But importantly, at that time, he continued to vehemently deny the existence of any other problems, like potential manipulation by foreign entities like Russia. And he denied and denied up until there was more evidence for that as well, at which point he backtracked and apologized and claimed that that had to be it. There were no more scandals for realsies this time. We've got everything handled. It was around this time that we began to see that Mark Zuckerberg's reassurances and seemingly heartfelt apologies were almost certainly neither heartfelt nor true reassurances. He's demonstrated a pattern of firmly denying that anything is wrong and even ridiculing the idea that manipulation and abuse of Facebook's tools and platforms is even possible only to backtrack later when it can finally be proved that something is wrong and then making assurances that they've got it all under control now and nothing like this will ever happen again. And who could have guessed that something like this was even possible in the first place? So essentially deny, 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 and only acknowledge issues after the damage has been done and when there are no reasonable doubts left to hide behind. There have been dozens of front-page-worthy embarrassments for Facebook in the months since, ranging from incredibly serious issues with their WhatsApp messaging platform being used to spread misinformation that has led to ethnic violence and even ethnic cleansing in Myanmar and Sri Lanka, to a data breach that exposed at least 30 million users' information to hackers, to allegations that the company has been lying to advertisers about viewership and readership numbers, basically charging these companies and people and organizations for views and clicks and interactions that were not real, especially when it came to video views. Those were apparently particularly fluffed up. But I want to fast forward to that piece in the New York Times because it puts an awkward bow on this multi-year ordeal that the company has had and ties it together in a way that makes it clear that something has got to give. Maybe soon, maybe dramatically, and maybe in a way that will significantly affect the way we use social media moving forward. 
This Times piece, as I mentioned earlier, is massive. It's over 6,000 words long, which is very big for a piece of news coverage. And as they tend to do these days, knowing that most of the reading public will not sit still and focus for that long, the Times published a shorter listicle alongside that main article to present the main points of the piece. And I will link to that in the show notes as well, though I would recommend taking the time to read the entire thing, if you can. The main crux of this article is that Facebook's official outward-facing stance is that when things go wrong within the company, the issues in question should be portrayed as being either unpredictable or understandable, and either way, definitely not the fault of anyone within the higher echelons of the company. The attempt by Facebook's PR department to paint founder and president Mark Zuckerberg and his unwittingness about these scandals as just the nature of a genius who is focused on other more important things has become cringeworthy. And the attempt to portray Chief Operating Officer Sheryl Sandberg's inattention as the same reeks of disingenuousness. And that's more so the case now than it was a few weeks ago because of this article. We now have evidence that not only were these higher-ups aware of what was happening, they actively conspired to hide it, to muddy the waters with fake news stories and negative PR against their perceived opponents, and they cast scapegoat after scapegoat to the wolves in order to protect their own professional and, according to some rumors, political ambitions. One of the more standout moments in this piece, to me, and it's actually the scene that this article opens with, is when Sheryl Sandberg, who formerly worked at Google and who is perhaps most famous for her best-selling book, Lean In, called a meeting of top Facebook executives and then publicly castigated the company's security chief, Alex Stamos, for telling the company's board that Facebook had not yet managed to put a lid on active Russian misinformation efforts that they had detected and had been attempting to fix. Sandberg and Zuckerberg were interrogated by their board as a result of their board learning about this information, about these efforts, and they were forced to face a slew of uncomfortable questions about their failure so far to contain this particular problem, but also about how they've been publicly denying that it was a problem in the first place for so long when there was evidence right there that it was. The board, being invested in the company's fortunes and future themselves, were rightly concerned, and the company's two leaders did not seem to have answers for them. Sandberg raged against Stamos the day after that interrogation at this meeting, not because he hadn't yet figured out how to solve the problem, but because he had brought it up, because he had told someone outside of the inner circle that there was a problem. Alongside moments like this one, the Times learned of efforts by Sandberg and Zuckerberg and their inner sanctum to obscure these issues as much as possible. So it makes sense that she would be pissed that this information, so carefully concealed, was now being shared with other people beyond their small circle of trust. These efforts to obscure, though, took on proportions that would be almost comical if they weren't also so horrible and at times disturbing. While Zuckerberg was out on what many have come to call his public apology tour over the course of the last year, his company, led by Sandberg, was in the midst of an intense and well-funded lobbying campaign to recast the issue of misinformation spreading and data breaches and security threats 
as being mostly the fault of their competitors, companies like Google and Amazon. And they even hired a Republican opposition research firm called Definers Public Affairs, which was originally brought in to help manage negative press coverage of the company in an effort to help alleviate internal concerns that conservatives in the U.S. were becoming convinced that the site was censoring conservative-leaning press coverage on the platform. Something that there was no evidence for, by the way. This is a storyline that we're seeing pretty frequently these days, where any news that is not heavily right-leaning, with the typical Fox News spin on it, is considered to be inherently left-leaning. If you're not with us, you're against us, that sort of thing which just clearly is not the case, but the issue was considered to be such a serious one, this perception was so widespread, that they brought in this group to monitor this type of information and to make suggestions as to how they could appease conservative concerns. And then they eventually increased this group's involvement to allow them to leverage their specialty, which is using political campaign tactics to complicate the issue of Facebook's problems in the public eye to ensure that no one is quite certain what is true and what is not. Toward those ends, they engaged in opposition research into Facebook's tech company opponents, but also into anyone who seemed to be criticizing Facebook in public, including individuals. And those individuals were then smeared in a variety of ways and places using, again, fairly common tactics from the world of politics, but tactics which are unusual in the world of business and tech. They smeared these individuals and companies as being in the pockets of other companies, and in some cases, as being anti-Semitic. The argument being that they were criticizing Facebook because it was run by two Jewish people, Zuckerberg and Sandberg. Things took an even more serious turn when this group began to traffic in their own, quote, coordinated, inauthentic content, end quote, which is the formal term for fake news created with the intent to manipulate, they began to post and share this type of content targeting specific individuals and groups using Facebook, along with articles that implied that essentially anyone who came out against Facebook who criticized the company or the people who run it were paid protesters funded by billionaire George Soros. This was a bogglingly bizarre storyline to pitch since Soros himself is Jewish. And these stories were running, in some cases, right alongside those other stories that claimed that these same protesters and journalists and anyone else who criticized Facebook were also anti-Semitic. But logic does not get you very far in the world of conspiracy theories. And in this case, the articles of both varieties aligned well with certain existing groups, existing biases. Soros has long been a target of right-wing conspiracy theories, for instance, because of his left-leaning politics and his charitable efforts around the world, which could be viewed from the outside and with a lack of information about these efforts as being seriously suspicious-seeming because of their scale and their diversity. So it's tough to know how much influence these pieces had, but they were well-shared and liked, and they added fuel to the existing conspiracy nonsense flames that already existed, and which were already commonly amplified on Facebook. We also learned, through this article, which itself drew on information from multiple news outlets, years of independent in-depth reporting, and independently verified information that was sourced from people who were leaking information from within Facebook and from folks who once worked there, or with one of the many Facebook-affiliated companies, we learned that there's a lot of internal divisiveness within the company at the moment, that a lot of time and attention 
has been invested in figuring out who should shoulder the blame, who should be the bag holder for all of this negative attention, and essentially how best to protect Zuckerberg and Sandberg, the two people with the most power and influence within this company. Other details have come out in the meantime that, for years, Zuckerberg has possibly been considering a presidential run, and his activities over the past few years, including his widely reported-upon tour around the United States, milking cows and riding tractors and shaking hands, seem to support that assertion, at least in theory. It's also been reported that Sandberg has been considering much the same, and rumors in this direction reached such a fever pitch that she had to come out and publicly say on the record that she had no plans to run for president in 2020, though it is well known that former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, in the run-up to the 2016 election, had said that she wanted to have Sandberg as part of her cabinet if she won the election. So there are political elements for both main characters in this story, and that adds to the complexity of it. Here we have two very successful business people who were potentially not just trying to protect the business that they built and which they run, but also maybe trying to protect their reputations, their prospects for future plans within the government. It's painfully ironic in some ways that their efforts to conceal these issues which they perhaps saw as being harmful to their political ambitions, might end up being the most harmful marks on their resumes in the future. In the intro, I talked about the Friday news dump, which is basically dropping bad news in bulk in moments when that news would seem to be likely to attract the least attention. Sometimes that's Friday evening because of the nature of journalism publishing schedules and the nature of weekends. Sometimes it's during other data dumps that other people have accidentally let leak out. You bury your news in somebody else's bad news. But Facebook took this concept a step further, releasing a document that essentially confirms most of the allegations made in the New York Times piece, but releasing it on November 21st. That's Thanksgiving Eve here in the U.S., and a day when most people are already mentally checked out for vacation, not reading the news as much as they would on a normal workday, and importantly, it is an extended weekend during which many journalistic entities are dramatically understaffed or closed. This piece was written in the form of a letter by the former head of communications and policy, Elliot Schrage, someone who had already submitted his letter of resignation before all of this went down and someone who therefore presumably did not have as much to lose by falling on his sword for these newly reported issues. The letter did make it out into the press, though, and it was met with a tepid, skeptical response. It was referred to by some news entities, actually, as a hostage letter, as it read like something written by a person who has a gun to their head, who is admitting to things that they couldn't possibly have done. And it was followed by an equally creepy-seeming letter by Sheryl Sandberg, who quickly, briefly admitted that she was in the loop about the Soros-blaming conspiracy theories that were invented by the company that they hired to do oppo research, but added that she'd asked them to do that research because Soros had called Facebook a, quote, menace to society, end quote, at the World Economic Forum in Davos back in January of 2018. She said that she wanted to know if he had some kind of economic motivation for doing so. And that's all it was supposed to be, according to this letter. Now, alongside all of that, and it pales in comparison to some of the other scandalous information in this piece, but it should be noted, I think, that the Democratic senator from New York, Chuck Schumer, has been 
particularly ardent in his support and defense of Facebook behind the scenes, often encouraging his fellow politicians to apply a light touch to the company regulatorily, even when Facebook has been in the spotlight for serious issues and punishments of some kind seem warranted. The scandal here is that in addition to having received a good deal of lobbying money from the company, Chuck Schumer's daughter also works for Facebook. And I mention that because it segues us into another element of this story, the potential for regulation, or even a breakup of Facebook sometime in the relatively near future. There have been calls and an increasing public appetite for a solution to the Facebook problem and the larger problem of social media and powered fake news and security issues for the past year or so. In the United States, we have a great deal of chatter going on about this topic, but in the European Union, they've actually taken action to levy monetary penalties and force stricter laws, including, but not limited to, those included in the GDPR, which I discussed more completely in a past episode that was completely about the GDPR, but which in short introduced a slew of new individual rights, especially when it comes to data and privacy in the online world in the European Union, which de facto tends to apply to much of the world because of how business works online. Things escalated even further, though, the day before I'm recording this, which I note because this is a quickly moving story and there is a decent chance that by the time I publish this episode, some new wild and crazy stuff will have happened. But this new twist occurred in the United Kingdom on November 24th, 2018, and credit to The Guardian, which seems to have been the newspaper to have broken this story. So the UK Parliament asked Mark Zuckerberg to come answer some questions that they had about fake news and its influence on elections and things like that, which is quite relevant to them at the moment, as first of all, it's thought that such misinformation may have nudged the Brexit vote toward leave, and second, because they are in the process of passing some new laws meant to help address some of the current issues related to social networks, news, data privacy, safety, security, and sharing. A group of politicians from Argentina, Brazil, Canada, Ireland, Latvia, Singapore, and the UK will be present for this hearing. And Facebook said that they would not send Zuckerberg, but they would send the vice president of policy solutions for the company, Richard Allen, instead. This hearing, it should be noted, is thought to be mostly for show. The politicians are unlikely to ask any serious questions, are almost certainly going to grandstand so they can later point at their behavior come election season to demonstrate how hard they were on the big bad social media company that's taken over the world. And it's actually in part just an introduction to a ceremony where these politicians will sign a collection of international principles meant to help guide the development of new laws that govern the internet. These principles are already established and printed out, so this Q&A session will not be informing them at all. And these principles are not legally binding. It's kind of just an opportunity for them to take some ideas that they've come up with and sign them together and have a show trial style conversation with a higher up from Facebook leading up to that moment. So it's pretty symbolic. From that perspective, then, it kind of makes sense that Zuckerberg would not want to participate in this event, even if they asked very nicely for him to do so. But as it turns out, his snubbing 
of that invite may not have been the best idea he's ever had. The Guardian reported on the evening of November 24th, 2018, that the UK Parliament has seized a cache of Facebook's internal documents. Now, that all by itself is remarkable, but the way that they seized them is even wilder. It would seem that there is a company called 643, which, and I am not making this up, I promise, once created an app for Facebook, something like the app that Cambridge Analytica made back in the day. But this one allowed users to find photos of their Facebook friends wearing bikinis. Facebook passed a new privacy policy that caused this bikini searching app to go out of business because the new privacy policy did not allow them to gather sufficient photographic data from users to, yes, again, this is real, to capture enough photos of women wearing bikinis. And that meant that they could not use that data to go out and find more photos of women in bikinis, which would then be served up to the quite probably creepy as hell users of this app. The founder of this company sued Facebook because his app went out of business due to this privacy policy change. He could no longer collect those creepster photos unimpeded. And as part of Discovery, a portion of the lawsuit in which one entity can force another to divulge information they would otherwise usually not be able to force them to divulge, he had a bunch of private email conversations between upper-level folks within Facebook, including emails and other messages between Sandberg and Zuckerberg and their immediate reports. The founder of 643 was in London on a business trip, apparently, but for what kind of business I would be worried to ask based on his prior product offerings. But whatever the specifics, he had this data with him in London, and a super uncommon piece of law was then used by Parliament to request this information from him, politely, but with a time limit of a few hours in which to comply. And when he refused to provide that information, he was then escorted by a sergeant at arms from his hotel to a separate legal process that, after some legal threats, led him to share that data that he had, those documents of internal Facebook conversations, with the UK Parliament. For its part, Facebook is super pissed off about this and is doing everything in its power to keep those private conversations sealed. And I should note that there are a lot of totally legitimate, not shady reasons why they would want to do this, including the protection of trade secrets, or even just not wanting embarrassing personal conversations to be made public. That said, it's also possible that these conversations could further implicate Zuckerberg and or Sandberg for all the issues the company has been having, showing that they had plenty of foreknowledge of these issues and failed to do anything to solve them beyond taking action to protect their own reputations. That this is happening now, and that it's happening in public, under the legal auspices of several powerful nations, does not bode well for Facebook's regulatory future. Even if they manage to dodge all the other bullets that are flying at them at the moment, this series of events has a momentum to it, and it implies that there is more to come on the horizon. To wrap all of this up, let's clarify that it is not just Facebook facing these sorts of problems, and it's not just Facebook that has a growing pile of scandals to deal with related to privacy, data security, and so on. They are the biggest, baddest company in this space, though. And that means that they are the archetype. They are the stand-in for all of the others. 
And there's a good chance that if something happens to Facebook, which also owns Instagram and WhatsApp, among other major properties, other companies like Twitter and YouTube and the like will either frantically scramble to make changes based on the regulations and punishments that they see being levied, or they will face similar consequences. There isn't a company operating in this space that has perfectly clean hands. And this may be a sign that the torches are being lit and the guillotine blade is being sharpened. And regulation is actually one of the more favorable outcomes for Facebook at this point. And it's potentially something that they could control, at least in part. When Zuckerberg went in front of Congress here in the United States, he actually alluded to the fact that he was open to that. He was open to regulation. And he didn't think that it was a terrible idea. His assumption, I think, was that he would play a role in developing those rules of the road for his industry, being a representative of the biggest entity within that industry. And these regulations would therefore not cause too much damage to his company and might actually protect him from future competitors as regulations put new economic and legal hurdles in the way of any other company that might want to step up and challenge the big boss in the future. Smaller companies may not have the resources to make sure that they are complying with all of these regulatory rules. The breaking up of the company on monopoly grounds would be probably less favorable for Zuckerberg, as would some kind of government oversight on just Facebook, like adding regulators to their board or deciding that the folks who are in charge today, while all this stuff is going down, are no longer allowed to run this sort of company, since they clearly cannot be trusted to put the needs of the billions of people on their networks ahead of their own professional and potentially political ambitions. But we're seeing misinformation and conspiracy theories flying around all sorts of mediums and platforms, not just social networks. Some of the same journalistic entities, for instance, that have done amazing reporting on this collection of stories that fall under the grander meta-narrative of Facebook's decline, they themselves have horrible ads and clickbait articles and misleading editorials on their sites. The incentives currently in place, those are the big overarching issue. And that is something that we are unlikely to solve by punishing just one company, even if it is a massive, influential company like Facebook. Another takeaway here is that Facebook and those who run it lie constantly and seemingly without any qualms. Much of the scandal, in fact, is not due to new revelations, but more because we are handed new proof of previous allegations that Facebook denied and argued against and used to paint itself as a victim. Look at all of these unfair people making crazy claims about us. And then that information turns out to be true. And the very people making the grandest claims of victimhood, especially Zuckerberg and Sandberg, we find out we're aware of this stuff all along. And while lying to the public, to all of us, they were behind the scenes, scrambling to cover it all up, pointing at every other company, anyone who criticizes them, and saying it's these people who are the bad guys, not us. Look at them, not at us. One more thought here, and this is something that I've been thinking about a lot recently is that the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which is a really interesting and well-funded and great on many levels charity through which Zuckerberg and his wife essentially spend the fortune that they've made, and the plan is to spend something like 99% of it before they die. It seems like this and other very well-intentioned projects like it, including the Gates Foundation, which is a similar nonprofit run by Bill and Melinda Gates, 
that they might be something like the Nobel Foundation, a wonderful institution that awards prizes for innovations and achievements in various realms of science and literature and academic pursuits and in peace, for which people are awarded, in that case, the Nobel Peace Prize. Less known is that these prizes and this foundation were established by Alfred Nobel, a man who had 355 inventions to his name, many of them weaponry-related, and his most famous invention, by far, and the one that made him the most money, was dynamite. Eight years before he actually died, Nobel was able to read a pre-written version of his obituary, which had been prepared by a French newspaper so that they would be ready whenever it was he happened to pass away. It was entitled, The Merchant of Death is Dead, and it caused Nobel to think in a very focused way about how he would be remembered when he died. And it caused him to change his will to ensure that his fortune was used to create a foundation that would give out a series of prizes that would award money to people who conferred the, quote, greatest benefit on mankind, end quote. So folks who wrote amazing beneficial literature, who discovered amazing things within physics or biology, people who accomplished wonderful things in the pursuit of diplomacy and peace, they would receive prizes drawn from the fortune of the guy who invented dynamite and who, in his own estimation at least, caused a great deal of harm in the world. I cannot help but wonder if some of these people, folks who inarguably have done amazing things, but who have done amazing things that have been a very mixed bag. If in some cases these charitable acts, these amazing things that they do with the money that they earn, is a way of trying to right the massive, large-scale wrongs that some of them have unintentionally wrought in the world as a byproduct of their work. They create dynamite, and they create the Nobel Prize. They create the biggest, most successful example of all of the issues that we have with social media, and then they create the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Now, I strongly suspect that Mark Zuckerberg does not think that he's causing a great deal of harm in the world. And in fact, I would argue that the good done by sprawling networks like Facebook and Instagram outweigh the bad, at least in general and at least for now. That said, a great deal of damage can be done with the best of intentions and primarily benevolent inventions if those inventions are held in the wrong hands. And Facebook and the algorithms and advertising platform that underpin it have definitely been wielded by what I would consider at least to be the wrong hands at times and to devastating effect. It'll be interesting to watch this story evolve in part because there are so many moving pieces and a lot can happen very suddenly when politics is mixed with business is mixed with technology, but also because there are a lot of definitions of good in play here held by different people. Lots of different people trying to establish themselves, build up their own reserves of power, and forward their own ambitions for themselves and for the world. And when those sorts of elements come into contact with each other, the results at times can be highly volatile and sometimes even explosive. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, and it is by one of my all-time favorite nonfiction authors, Yuval Noah Harari. 
Harari is probably best known for his book Sapiens, but Homo Deus, in my estimation, is actually still my favorite of his works. But 21 Lessons for the 21st Century is an excellent addition to that growing collection of very interesting, very well-written books he has produced. This one delves into a lot of different topics. His prior books were about the history of humankind and the future of humankind. And this one is about a lot of the concerns of today. In a way, a lot of the things that we're talking about in the news that we are discussing in everyday conversation and wondering about and worrying about, he touches on here with just an impressive grasp of a variety of topics. And as is typical in his writing, he presents both breadth and depth in assessing the context of these things that he's talking about. So if you enjoy this show, chances are you will enjoy this book. So if you get the chance, if that sounds interesting, consider grabbing a copy of 21 Lessons for the 21st Century by Yuval Noah Harari. And also consider picking up Sapiens and or Homo Deus if you haven't read those ones yet. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find more information about my tour, where I will be and when, and how to get tickets at becomingtour.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name on most of them. But if Facebook is your thing, I am Colin Wright on there. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.